Tonight, we're going to be looking at a passage from Matthew at the very end of it. So you can join me on page 1044 in your pew Bibles. It's the Great Commission. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Thank you for reading. Good evening, friends. <clears throat> now, we'll be uh, finishing Matthew finally. This is after five years we've been doing chunks of Matthew each year. Now, for those of you who are new here visiting us or just uh, recent uh, newcomers, um, what we do at our church is that we are committed to the Word of God, understanding what God teaches us verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And so that's our commitment over the many years. And so next week we'll start uh, the second half of Romans, uh, which we started last year. Um, now, hopefully tonight's passage will be convicting to you, as it was to me as I reflected on this, this past week. Uh, but let's uh, turn to God once again. We'll pray, and then we'll have a look at it. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words to us, uh, commanded to us to live in this way, in obedience, uh, for your glory as we strive and work hard to make disciples of all nations. We pray, Lord, that you'll convict us tonight in the way we should go, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as a, um, a pastor, as a minister, I find it actually quite fascinating that words can be so powerful. I mean, each week, I don't know whether you, whether you want to or not, but you come to listen to a 30-minute sermon just to listen to words. But words can be so powerful because it can motivate, it can inspire, it can even move nations. In, our last, uh, in the last century, in fact, there have been many great orators, many famous speeches by famous people. And so to begin, I, I thought I'll test your trivia skills, whether you can work out who made these speeches. Here's the first. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. Any ideas who, who said that? Yep, Winston Churchill. Good. You see, Winston Churchill, PM of the UK during World War II, this speech was made in 1940 during the Battle of France. France was soon to surrender, and so Winston gave this speech to give hope to Britain in their dark hour. All right, what about this speech? My fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Okay, I'll, I'll finish it, thank you. <laughs> My fellow citizens of the world, ask not what American can do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man. And yes, it was Kennedy, JFK. Now that was his, his inaugural address as the 30, 35th President of the United States. What about this one? I have a dream that my four little children 
will one day live in a nation where they will no lo- not be judged by the colour of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Yes, Martin Luther King Jr. Okay, I have to remember the junior. Well, this past week was in fact his 50th, the 50th anniversary of his assassination. That was an address he gave in 1963 to over 250,000 civil rights supporters from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. If you think about these speeches, they were powerful speeches, just words, but yet they changed the world. Winston Churchill, in his speech, it roused the nation and inspired them to stand firm as the only democracy left in Europe against Germany. It boosted the morale of their citizens and the soldiers uh, to, to make their darkest hour their shining moment, and they won the war. Or JFK, in his speech, he helped America see that they were moving towards a new frontier with him as president. And he's the one, remember, who inspired the nation to go to the moon. He said, we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And they did go to the moon, was powerful speech. Or Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech. I mean, considered, it was considered one of the greatest speeches in American history. It sent out a message of hope and equality for all people. And he achieved much from his words. You see, days just after his assassination, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1968. And so when you think about words and the power of words and the power of speeches, they can change the world. I mean, they have changed cities, they have changed nations, they have changed generations just from words. But today, what we'll be looking at, as powerful as those speeches were, as significant as those changes were, and as moving as those words were, they have nothing on what we're looking at today. The final words of Jesus to his disciples. In only 51 words, in only three verses, these words continue to affect the world after 2,000 years. Nothing has shaped world history like these words. These words continue to inspire and motivate and encourage Christians the world over. It helps us keep focus as Christians that our God has given us, our, us this mission in this world to this world. You see, the king of the universe has given his mandate to us, his disciples. And so let's have a look at these final words of Jesus. Now let me encourage you, keep your Bibles open, it's only a few verses, but we will work our way through them. Now these words aren't just words by anyone. But these are the words from the lips of the one with divine authority. You see, Jesus was one who died the criminal's death. You know, pathetic, helpless, hopeless, buried in a tomb without any hope or help. But yet, after three days, he emerged from the shadow of death as the one who conquered the grave. And so you see here, we're listening to not just the words of any man or woman. We're listening here to the words of the king of the universe. We hear, hear the authority of the king. And so this passage begins with this reunion with the disciples after Jesus rose from the dead. Let me just even reflect on that for a moment, just Easter last week. No one comes back from the dead. It's just impossible. 
No one comes back from the dead, but this happened. And then verse 16 we read, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Now that was told by Jesus before he died. Now what did the disciples do when they saw their master? I mean, they knew he was killed, they knew he was crucified, they knew that he was buried, and now to see their master alive again. What, what would you have done? What would you have been thinking? I mean, to see your master alive after being dead, high fives all around maybe, hugs and kisses, maybe tears of joy, to see someone who is dead alive again. But here, no, we don't see that. That's not what we see. You see, the disciples did the only thing that was appropriate. When you see the one who comes back from the dead, what do you do? When you see the one who is indeed the Son of God, the Son of Man, the King of heaven and earth, what do you do? Well, you get on your knees and you worship. And that's what they did. Look at verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, though some did doubt. Now, it would be inappropriate if you think about that, as much as we respect each other, it would be inappropriate to just to bow down to anyone. Right? I respect you a lot, but I wouldn't bow down to you, and I, I suspect some of you would at least respect me. Maybe you should bow down to No, you don't need to. <laughs> but we don't bow down to each other. We're friends. It would be inappropriate. But here it was not inappropriate, for Jesus is the Son of God. And now we see here he claims an authority that no one would ever dare to claim. He claims an authority beyond everyone else, above everyone else. If you, if you think about this, Buddha, the religious leader, the founder of Buddhism, never claimed to possess all power and authority over the whole universe, nor did Muhammad ever make such a claim. But Jesus here, he claims such a claim. He claims such power and authority. I mean, for Anyone to make such a claim that I have all power and authority over the universe, over heaven and earth, you're either speaking the truth or you're a loony, you're a nutcase, you're a madman, someone to be sent to the psych ward. But here are the words of the one who came back from the dead. He is indeed the Son of God. And that's why our series, this Matthew series, is titled To Cross and Crown. You see, for Jesus to head to the cross, to die and be crucified, was also finally for him to claim the crown, to have absolute power in heaven and on earth. And so verse 18, that's what Jesus said. Have a look. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I mean, that is absolute power and authority. It's just hard to imagine. It's staggering perhaps quite difficult for us to get our minds around. And so as I reflected on this, what does this power look like? Well, as a parent, I have some powers at home. I can decide which school our kids go to. I have that power. I can decide that our kids clean their rooms, weed the garden. I have that power, but it's not a very successful power, but I do. As a husband, I also have some powers at home. Actually, I don't have much powers there. As a pastor, let's move on. <laughs> I have some powers too. 
I can decide what book we study next as a church. Along with our elders, we can decide who should be in leadership. We have some powers there. But let's, let's move up a few notches. Let's go up to perhaps the most powerful man in this world. Perhaps that's the United States president. Perhaps the most powerful man in the free world. What can he do with his powers? Well, he can sign or veto legislation. He commands the largest armed forces in the world. And just for us to appreciate his powers and how much there is that goes around to protect him, he's got an army of secret services wherever he goes. In a motorcade that he's in, do you know there are about 12 cars in a motorcade wherever, whenever the president goes? And so when he goes overseas, there are big jumbo jets that carries his cars around. And each motorcade that goes past, there's always an ambulance and, and even a helicopter close by. I mean, that's power. That is a powerful man. But that's nothing compared to the power that Jesus is claiming here. Jesus here claims to have absolute power in heaven and on earth. Power over the furthest galaxies to every strand of hair on our head. Power over the grandest whales to the tiniest microbes. Power over the angels in heaven to every, every ruler on earth. Power over life and death itself. I mean, that is power. Absolute power. There is no corner in the whole universe that Jesus does not rule. He rules over every corner in the universe. It is absolute power, the power and authority of the king. But what did Jesus choose to do with his power, with his authority? I mean, with all that power, you can do whatever you like. He could have ended the world straight away when he appeared to the disciples. He could have brought about judgment day, end suffering, wiped every tear, stopped every pain, restore perfect peace and justice with a click of a finger. He's got that type of power. He could have done that. But instead, what did he do? Well, with all the powers, he commanded his disciples to go and make disciples. Now that might sound okay because we've read this before and we understand and it sounds very familiar. This is the Great Commission. But it should strike us as strange. Why would the king of the universe need the help of these disciples? I mean, these were uneducated fishermen. There was a tax collector there. They were the ones who deserted their master when he needed them most. They're really just losers, these bunch of, of disciples. And so why would the king of the universe, who has all the power of the universe at his disposal, need these disciples? I mean, surely he could have done it all by himself. Why not? Well, the full answer will come in our next series in Romans. So you have to come back. There's a little plug. That's the full answer. You have to come for the whole series. But the short answer is that somehow Jesus in his wisdom and in all his power chooses that this is the way he will save the world. Through people, through weak and frail people, through this uneducated fisherman and a tax collector. So what was his command? Well, what do we read? Well, we see here, go and pursue your career. Go and make for yourself a comfortable life. Is that what we see? 
Go and explore the world. Go on an adventure. Go and enjoy yourself. Is that what we see? Now, not that these things are wrong or bad, but the command of the king of the universe to all his disciples is to go and make disciples. Not sit around and make disciples, hoping that disciples will be formed. Not laze around and hope that you're making disciples. But go and make disciples. And not just Australian disciples, not just disciples you like. Look at verse 19 now. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Everyone, everywhere. See, that's a tagline we use here in our youth ministry. Making disciples for Christ. This is the central command for all Christians. And if we who are Christians are to be obedient, this applies to us. We need to go and make disciples. You see, the universal lordship of Jesus demands this universal mission to make his lordship known. You see, if he is indeed the Lord of everyone and everything, then everyone needs to know that he is Lord of all. And so go and make disciples. Everyone, everywhere, leave no one out. You cannot get a bigger command than that. Every single soul on this earth, every generation that lives on this earth, everyone, everywhere. But then what does this mandate mean? What does it involve? Well, there are two parts to making disciples, and they're expressed in the verse by the ing-word, the I-N-G words, baptising and teaching. They flesh out what it means to make disciples. So have a look with me. Do you see that? Verse 19 again. Baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, do you notice there, how many names do we see there? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It looks like three names. But the word name is singular, not plural. Do you notice that? That's already showing us that we believe in only one God, three persons in one God. It's where we get the Trinity from. And so we read, read on. Baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And so what does that mean? What does it look like? Well, the first one, to baptize, what does that mean? Well, we automatically think baptize means water, sprinkling or dunking like what we did the other week. But can it be that? Is that what it means? Because this command is for all Christians, right? Every Christian is to baptize. Now, how many of you have baptized someone? Anyone? Perhaps just me. You see, in our denomination, only ministers are allowed to baptize. And so does this mean then that this command only applies to ministers, the reverends, some Christians? Well, it can't be that. And it is not that. You see, to baptize literally means to be immersed, engulfed, to be plunged in, to be overwhelmed. It can involve water. But the word itself does not necessarily always require water. Just like what John the Baptist said, remember what he said? I'll baptise you with water, but Jesus will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
And so somehow the greater baptism that Jesus promises has nothing to do with water at all. But it is to be engulfed, immersed, plunged in with the spirit and fire. But then what does that mean? Well, theologically, we get a clue from Jesus himself. There's this story when the two disciples of Jesus, James and John, they wanted to be at the right and left side of Jesus in glory. And do you remember what Jesus said? He said in Mark 10, You don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? Now what did Jesus mean by that? Well, whatever he meant, it did not mean you will be baptised with water because by this stage in, this, by this stage in the Gospel, Jesus himself was already baptised in water by John the Baptist. And so what did Jesus mean? Well, Jesus was referring to his own death. And so to be baptised with the same baptism is to be united with Jesus in his death and, of course, his resurrection as well. And so, you see, to be baptised is really to be immersed, engulfed, completely plunged in with Christ in his death and resurrection. And to put simply, what does it mean to be baptised in Christ? It means to become a Christian. How do you go about making disciples? By baptising them. What does that mean? Make them Christians. Make them followers of Christ through faith in Christ. And that's why the Apostle Paul himself, he was quite laid back with water baptism. He said this, For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel. And so how do you go about making disciples? You make disciples by baptising, which means by making believers through the proclamation of the gospel. It is as we share Christ as the only king, as the only God, as the only saviour there is. That is how people are baptised, as they believe that and respond in faith. And so this is really about evangelism, this first part. This task is not limited to ordained ministers who can baptise with water as a ceremony, which is a symbol. But this, you see, this commission is for all Christians. You are to go and make disciples by baptising, that is, to unite them to Christ in faith. That's the first part of making disciples. Now the second part to making disciples is to teach. Now what is that about? Well, making disciples involves teaching disciples. You see, it's not good enough to cross the line to join the family of God, to become a child of God, and that is it. It involves learning and growing as a Christian, maturing as a Christian and as a child of God so that our minds would grow in our understanding of God and his plans and purposes and his wisdom, so that our hearts grow in our love for God and his people and his world, and so that our hands also grow in service. And so that's what happens when we teach what Jesus commanded. That's why as a church family, the Bible is central. It is God's word to us. We hear it each week in our Sunday sermons. We study it in our growth groups. We encourage personal Bible reading because this is how you grow. Making disciples involves coming into the faith and growing up in the faith. Making disciples involved in evangelism and the word edification, which means building up. We bring in and we build up. We baptise and we teach. 
And so the universal lordship of Jesus demands this universal mission to make his lordship known universally. That's the king's mandate for all Christians. But how is it at all possible? I mean, if you think about this mandate, every single soul in the world, every generation that lives on this earth, how is that at all possible? It's a humongous task. I mean, how competent, how skilled, how eloquent must we be to do this task? How is it possible that you or me could possibly make disciples of all nations? It's a huge task. But that's why Jesus ends with a final promise. The king promises that he will remain present with his people. You see, the disciples didn't go about the task alone, like it depended on them. Like they were able to, through their words, bring someone who was dead to sin to be alive in Christ. How could they have achieved all that with their own power? You see, it's impossible. And that's why Jesus made this final promise. Have a look at verse 20 now. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Do you see how marvellous that promise is? It was the promise that was made when Jesus was born. Do you remember the name that was given to Jesus at Christmas, at the beginning of Matthew? In Matthew 1, we read this, The virgin will be with child, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's how Matthew began. How does Matthew end? Well, it ends with the promise of Jesus. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Jesus is God with us always. Now when you hear that final promise, I suspect some of us might be thinking, isn't that nice and warm and cosy? should give us that fuzzing warm feeling inside that Jesus is with us always. Though that is true. Jesus is with his believers, with his followers, always by his spirit. But the promise here is not independent of his command. His command was to go and make disciples. And so the promise then is, I will be with you as you go and make disciples. You don't make disciples alone like it depends on you. The salvation of any soul does not depend on you, but I will be with you and I'll give you success. Which means there is such wonderful confidence and assurance as any disciple goes out making disciple. Because Jesus is with us. It's never dependent on anyone's strength, skills or eloquence. I mean, if I think about this, it is great assurance. What hope is there for me as I try to bring someone to faith? Like it depended on me, how hopeless would that task be? But because Jesus here promises to be with us, how hopeful should it be? How exciting would it be? And how expectant I must be as I go making disciples, Christ is with me, and so disciples will be made. As you go making disciples, Christ is with you, and so disciples will be made. And so we see here, the king has made known his authority. He has given us his mandate, and now he's given us his promise He will be with us till the very end of the age. 
But now, what does this all mean for us? So what? Well, the 51 words spoken by the king continues to change the world. And it will never stop changing this world till the very end. These are powerful words. But what does it mean for us? Well, for some of you here tonight, and I suspect for some of you have been coming for a while or just visiting for the first time, some of you are not yet a Christian. You're probably brought here by friends. It's wonderful that you're here. So glad that you're here and we want you here back here every single week so that you can join in fellowship with us. But for those of you who are not yet a Christian, have you ever wondered what your purpose in life is? What is God's purpose for you in life? Well, you see, this passage makes that clear, what his purpose is. And it is not to seek a life of good, happy joy, but it is to become a disciple of Jesus. Because in doing so, you'll find a better life. You'll find greater happiness. And you'll find lasting joy. Because you see, to become a disciple of Jesus, you enter into the family of God. You belong to God as his child, as his son or daughter. And you'll be able to call heaven your eternal home. That's what it means to become a disciple of Jesus. That is our desire, and so we want you to come back and to hear that and hopefully to believe that. And it's my greatest desire for my children that they continue as disciples of Jesus. About a month ago, on the 5th of March, I had a chat with our three kids about heaven and hell. And so it was a pretty simple question. I said to them, would you rather be in heaven or hell? Go clean your room. No, I, didn't say I didn't say that, I just asked. Would you rather be in heaven or hell? It's one of those gospel conversations that I have once in a while with, with our kids. Straight to the point, heaven or hell? And they said, heaven. And so I said, well, it's the best place, isn't it? Because there's no more crying, no more tears in heaven. And then my eldest said, well, what about happy tears? I reflected on that a for a moment, and I felt a bit emotional, which is hard to believe, but I did. I said, happy tears. Well, yes, there might be, but how wonderful would that be? I'll die first, and one day I'll see each one of you in heaven, and it'll be happy tears. And then I asked them, but do you know what's better than that in heaven? Well, they knew the answer. They said, well, we'll see God. I said, that's right. The best thing in heaven is not just that we'll be reunited, not the stuff in heaven, but being with God himself. And of course, our three kids, they've got biblical names. So I said to them, well, Esther, you'll see the real Esther. Caleb, you'll see the real Caleb. And Ethan, you'll see the real Ethan. But you see, that is what you get for being a disciple of Jesus. You belong to God. And so for those of you who are not yet a Christian, I'm so glad that you are here, but have you ever wondered what God's purpose for you is in life? It is to become a disciple of Jesus. Now what about the rest of us who are already disciples? What does God want for us? 
Well, it's simple, isn't it? Go and make disciples. There's no more important task in this entire universe for you than that. But that might seem a bit too big. We hear that and we might get worried and anxious. I mean, do we need the gifts and charisma and eloquence and the oratory skills like the great evangelists before us? And there have been many. I mean, in the 19th century, one of the greatest evangelists was D.L. Moody. He preached in the 19th century before internet, before Facebook, preached to an estimated over 100 million people. Do we need to be like him to make disciples? Or in the 20th century, one of the greatest evangelists was one who died recently, Billy Graham, estimated that he preached to over 200 million people. Do we need to be like him in order to make disciples? Or maybe we're just waiting for God to raise up the next one in this century, someone who will preach to 300 million people. It could even be one of you. But do we need to be like that in order to go and make disciples? Well, the answer is, of course not. You just need to be like one of those loser disciples, one of the originals, an educated fisherman, a tax collector, who went around the Mediterranean proclaiming Christ is King and Lord and the only Saviour there is, who went around making disciples who went on making disciples. And what came of the efforts of these losers? The world is never the same again. The world was changed forever. Only 12 changed the world. Now how many do we have here tonight? Imagine what God could do with us. Now I'm sure we're not losers, right? What can God do with us? There's probably about 12 times 12 here tonight. Imagine what God could do with that if each and every one of us who are already disciples go and make disciples, going out like tentacles into our world, into our schools, our universities, into our workplace, into our homes, into the four corners of this world to proclaim that Christ is Lord and King. That must be the flavour of our church. Never satisfied, never in maintenance mode, but always on mission, always aiming, not just in here, but out there beyond the wars. Imagine what God can do with us. He changed the world through those 12 disciples. Imagine what God could do with us. And I'm pleased to say many of you are making disciples. Many of you are. At our church camp last year, we heard from one of our members of our church how he goes about making disciples. He's a cardiologist, which means he's a heart doctor. We've in fact got quite a few cardiologists in our church, so if you want to have a heart attack, it's the best place to have a heart attack. But anyway, none of them are here tonight, so that actually is bad news. Don't have it tonight. No heart attacks tonight, please. But he's a Christian a committed, devout Christian, and also a cardiologist. What's his task? Well, he understands more important than healing the physical heart is to heal 
the spiritual heart of his patients. And so he will have patients who will come to him to have a catch-up to talk about their spiritual problems. And in his kindness and generosity, he bulks build them. I mean, that is big. A cardiologist, they can charge about a thousand bucks a minute. But he bulks build them because he's on about making disciples. Now imagine what God could do with us if we had that same heart for those outside these wars. And so how do we go about that? Well, we might not be losers, but we go about it stumbling, mumbling, stuttering, but we proclaim Christ and him crucified. And we do so with much tease and on bended knees in prayer. And that's why Spurgeon, he once said, winners of souls must be weepers of souls. And there should be weeping. It's very easy for us here to be so comfortable that we forget so many souls are lost, so, so many, and that should break our hearts. It should grieve our hearts. I mean, did you know that there are still about 1,700 languages that do not yet have the Bible in their language? Did you know that there are over 6,700 people groups who have no access to hearing the gospel? Did you know that there are still about 3.1 billion people around the world who have never heard of Jesus? What are we doing? We're worried about our own issues. What are we doing? There should be much tears and bended knees in prayer. And so how do we go about this momentous task? We always aim big. We're aiming for the world. All nations, we aim big. But our, F, F, uh, our, method, our method is small. One soul at a time. We evangelize the world. We aim big. But our method, one soul at a time. We evangelize the world one soul at a time, knowing that Christ is with us always. I've got a few non-Christian friends I've been friends with for a long time, and they're on my prayer diary. I pray for them. We evangelize the world. We aim big. But we go one soul at a time, knowing that Christ is with us. You see, in the end, None of us may be able to give speeches as eloquent, as heart-moving, as nation-inspiring like John F. Kennedy or Winston Churchill or Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, I reflect on my own speaking and I stumble over my words all the time. I've got this funny accent people tell me about and they laugh at my expense and that's perfectly okay. But you see, all of us have words that are far more powerful than those powerful speeches. Words that can give life. Words that will continue to change this world till the very end. Words that proclaim that Christ is King and that Christ is also Saviour. We evangelise the world one soul at a time, knowing that Christ is with us always. And just imagine what heaven would be like. Imagine seeing the souls that God used you to save. What lasting joy that would bring. Now Martin Luther King Jr. He knew the speech of Jesus 
was greater than his. He was a great speaker. But he knew that the speech of Jesus was greater than his. He knew that the speech of Jesus was far more important than his. Though he was famous for being a civil rights leader, his first commitment was to obey the king's mandate. Listen to what he said. Before I was a civil rights leader, I was a preacher of the gospel. This was my first calling and still remains my greatest commitment. And what is that commitment? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Shall we pray to that end? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we plead to you, our Heavenly Father, please convict each and every one of our hearts with a zeal and passion to obey our King's mandate, to see more and more of us making disciples and to see more and more disciples being made. And as weak and frail as we are, equip us all for that huge task that more might be in heaven and that more might bring praise and glory to you for all eternity. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our King and Saviour. Amen.